following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. I'd encourage you to do something I've been doing the last few weeks. Um, I've just done it as an encouragement. Hopefully you will as well. Don't do it all at the same time or Jordan will get mad at me. But uh, while we're singing, I don't know if you ever take this opportunity just to stop singing and listen to the people around you. It's just a real blessing to the heart to hear all the voices in this room just in unison praising God together. And if you really want a a good opportunity to worship, there you go. That's a good opportunity for you to do that. And so, uh, like I said, don't do it all at once or else it's Jordan singing a solo and he won't like that any more than we will. So, uh, just kidding. You're in Mark 4. Let's read these uh, 34 verses here again. And then go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time in the Word. Verse 1 says, Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but... The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? 
It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. Jesus, we come back again to this passage to learn from you what the kingdom is going to be like, what your kingdom is going to be like. The problem, Lord, that I think all of us bring to the table this morning as we come and think about your kingdom is that for far too many of us and for far too long, the kingdoms we have been most interested in are our own. And so we hear you talk about these things, and while we understand them in some ways, it's very hard to live in light of these truths, I think. And so, God, this morning as we work through these last two parables of the kingdom that Jesus gives us here, will your spirit open our eyes to see our own sinful responses, our own sinful expectations, the the ways in which we fail to live in light of how your plan is unfolding in this world? Will you encourage us then, Lord, to live in light of that plan, to give ourselves fully to it, to to find our hope in you, not in ourselves in this process of of, of growth, of ministry, of, of just living our lives within the gospel that you have called us to. So this is our request this morning. It's my request for my own heart. It's it's our request together corporately for our church. Help us to see these things very clearly this morning. We can please speak to our hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've learned a, a lot over the past year or two um, through landscaping our yard. Uh, if you've ever done much landscaping in your own yard or maybe ever had a, a job where you could do such, you, you begin to realize very quickly there are a lot of lessons in, in landscaping and just generally in working outside, I think, that you may not otherwise get in a lot of other realms. For example, sometimes I, I've learned that you have to make things worse in order to make things better. So, so right now, if you were to come to our house, you'd notice a couple of things that are really quite ugly at this point. This December, I trimmed our holly bushes down to just stumps in the ground because they were huge, they were overgrown. I don't necessarily mind them, but they desperately needed a, a drastic reshaping. And while they are starting to grow back and starting to fill in, it's been months of just ugly stumps sitting in front of our yard that really aren't very attractive. In a similar way, right now in our backyard, uh, we have a kind of a, a grading problem. Water was running toward the house, and so I wanted it to run away from the house, as anybody would. But the problem is, how do you get everything situated for long enough for the soil to take and grass to grow in? And so what I did was I took these old scrap pieces of, of wood that I had, and I built a barrier along the side of my house that have like nails sticking out of it. It's really, really terrible and dangerous and ugly, so please do not let your children in my backyard. Um, and up against that, I put dirt and, and graded it away, which I think by probably this wintertime will have, once I put some grass seed in this fall, will take and be secure enough for me to pull those out. But right now, it makes the backyard look really bad. But that's just how it works sometimes. You've got to make things worse to make them better. And you, I've learned a lot just about sheer execution of, of of tasks that I need to accomplish in that. Uh, another lesson is I think you have to be able to see two or three years down the road when you're working in your yard. 
Like you, you, you come out there and you, you want everything to be pretty right now, but of course that's not the case, right? It, you plan a plan and it doesn't look that good at first. It's going to take a couple years to, to grow and build, and I, I want the, the grass to grow right away. You've got to have some vision for this thing, and if you don't have vision for it, you can't really see where it's going to go. And with that, you have to be patient, right? You have to learn the, the, the lesson of patience to, to be able to let that time pass. You, I've learned a lot about man's sinfulness, uh, <laughs> You could take that a couple of ways. One in my own heart is I have responded at points wrongly to things that have occurred in my yard. But also I've thought a lot about Adam and Eve in the garden and realizing that the reason I'm out there sweating like I am is because they blew it. So I'm, by the toil of my hands, I'm, I'm working. Well, in, in thinking through all these things over the past couple of years, it's occurred, occurred to me on more than one occasion that there are some similarities in some of the things I just shared And what you see in many of Jesus's parables along the way is oftentimes Jesus uses these stories of farming and planting and growing and that kind of of those kind of concepts to teach certain principles and truths to his followers. And I'm certainly not likening myself to Jesus and saying that I've learned some lessons along the way. But I, I just am observing that there are many lessons to learn from such things. And Jesus used that very quality on a regular basis. For instance, if we just take this particular passage that we've been studying here in Mark 4 for the last few weeks as an example, it's interesting to me that all three of the public parables that Mark records for us here in this passage have to do with this farming, grant, uh, growing, planting kind of concept. You know, as Jesus sat down to teach in the boat that day there by the Sea of Galilee, the first parable he shares with us is the parable of the sower. So here you've got a sower, and he's going out, and he's just indiscriminately throwing seed, and some of that seed's falling on the path where the birds are coming to eat it, and some is falling on rocky ground where it sprouts up, but there's no depth, and so it dies. Other seed falls amongst weeds, and it grows, but it doesn't produce any fruit. And finally, you've got some seed that falls on good ground, and it grows and produces an amazing harvest. The next public parable he gives is found in verse 26. And remember that section from um, verse 10 to verse 25 is, I believe, a private teaching moment between him and his disciples disciples but but in verse 26 you're back out at the sea and Jesus is telling the second parable here about seed that is just kind of growing on its own in the ground the man sows the seed and then he just goes about his normal daily life and while he's doing that this the seed begins to grow on its own the third parable is found in verse 30 and it's known as the parable of the mustard seed and here Jesus observes that a mustard seed which he calls the smallest seed on earth when it's sown, it grows into this largest of garden plants, and birds can come and nest in it. And you get all these stories, these parables, and you put them together, and you realize that they all have at least two things in common. First, they, as you can clearly see, they all have to do with the concepts of farming and planting and growing, as I've pointed out. Remember that a parable is a, is a comparative idea. It's something that you lay out next to something else to help you understand this other thing better. And in this particular society, Jesus turns to stories and examples and illustrations that would have been very, very common and well understood in that day. Everyone was somehow, in some way, shape, or form, tied to these ideas of farming and planting and growing. And Jesus uses them here to teach us about God's kingdom, which is the second thing they have in common, right? That all of these parables, they're they're not about different things. They're all about one thing, and that one thing is God's kingdom. And that's what's different between the lessons I've learned over the last few years and Jesus' parables here. Mine are about this and that, about vision and patience and sinfulness and all this stuff. And they're just scattered, random, disjointed thoughts. Not 
not Jesus's. These aren't random disjointed thoughts from the world of agriculture. Jesus has a very specific topic, a very specific issue that he wants the people that he's talking to to understand. And that topic, that issue is none other than the coming rule and reign of God on this earth, otherwise known as the kingdom of God. And as I've explained in the weeks past, his listeners who are hearing Jesus talk about this coming kingdom have some really grandiose expectations of what this thing is going to be. They're they're picturing fireworks. They're picturing huge events. They're picturing amazing glory. and, And yet here's this carpenter from Galilee coming and proclaiming that he's the introduction to God's kingdom. And so Jesus is through these parables, he's re-explaining all of that because in reality, the coming of the kingdom isn't going to be like anything that they expected. And so Jesus lays out for them a right expectation of God's plan via these parables. And so what I wanted to do today is just look at these final two kingdom parables that we see here in verses 26 to 34. And then tie what we see therein with what we learned a couple weeks ago about the, the parable of the sower and then bring all of that together home with some applications and observations about God's kingdom and how that applies to us. Because I'm telling you, it wasn't just the first century listeners who had wrong expectations of God's kingdom. It's us as well. So if you will, look at parable 2 here in verse 26. We're going to read it again, and then I'll just walk us through it. In verse 26, Mark records Jesus as saying this, that the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And let's just quickly walk through this parable to make sure you understand what Jesus is saying. And I'd, I'd begin by noting the fact that Jesus specifically alerts his audience to the fact that this parable, this story, is about the kingdom of God. That way there's no ambiguity as we come to it thinking, well, what's Jesus really trying to get at here? What's his real message? His real message is simple because he said it. It's about the kingdom. Notice also that, again, you have another sower at work. And like last time, the sower is scattering seed on the ground. But unlike the last parable, the focus isn't on all the different things that happen to the seed and whether or not they bear fruit. No, in this parable, the focus is more on the process and means by which the seed grows and bears fruit. In other words here, you notice in verse uh, 27 that after the man sows the seed... What exactly does he do? He sleeps, which is an odd factor or odd thing to say, I would think, in in that agrarian culture. He goes out and he, he scatters the seed and then he goes home and he goes to bed. He sleeps, he rises night and day. You get the idea that a process is unfolding here. And Jesus isn't saying that's all the man does as if he became instantly lazy after the seed is sown. He's simply pointing out the fact that time is passing here and there's nothing that the farmer can do to cause the seed to sprout and grow. There's nothing at all left for him beyond what he has done up to this point. And so he just goes on with life. And yet, what is happening with the seed as this time is passing? Well, notice it sprouts and grows. Not because the farmer is doing something to it. No, in fact, Jesus states the obvious here when he says that the seed sprouts and grows, and the farmer doesn't even know how that's happening. 
He, he is in no way, shape, or form responsible for the sprouting and growth of the seed. He doesn't even fully understand how it's working. How is this, this dry, dead little kernel of something going to produce life? Life that can sustain me and my family. The earth, Jesus says here, it's just, it's just producing by itself. And, and first the blade appears, then the, the ears appear on the blade, then the grain grows in the ear. And, and it's not until the very end when the grain is finally ready that the farmer really even comes back into the picture and gets involved again. And it's, it's this whole picture that as you look at it here, you see that Jesus' focus is on the fact that, that while the farmer's actions are certainly necessary and, and important in the story, Everything else that's going on in the growing of this grain and the, and the uh, reaping of it even at the end is not the farmer's doing. It's not in the farmer. It's not because he caused it. It's not because he can control it. Yes, he sows. Yes, he reaps. But the growing and the fruitfulness of the seed belongs to someone other than the farmer. He doesn't even understand what's happening before his very eyes. This is a very simple parable. It's very short. This is the parable of the seed growing. Hold on to that for a few moments and look at parable number three, the parable of the mustard seed. Mark writes in verse 30, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And again, let's just walk through it to make sure you understand. It's not big or complicated. Note again, what's the story about? It's about the kingdom. No ambiguity, no question. With what can we compare the kingdom to, Jesus says? What parable can I use to explain it? Oh, I know. It's kind of like a mustard seed. This is where he's going with this, and he's going to teach us about the kingdom through it. And he says that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which is, when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And can I just stop at that point and ridicule some people for a few minutes? It's, it seems to me that over the years I have heard people come back to this particular verse, and they've really gotten hung up on this comment. It's like it's caused them a lot of grief. And the reason it's caused them so much grief is because taken at face value, this statement is false. You know what I'm saying? Jesus is wrong. It's not the smallest seed of, of all the seeds on earth. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's really small. There you go. It's about the size of a small peppercorn. If you want to see what a mustard seed looks like. But, but there are smaller seeds than that. And so some people read these words and they're like, well, that's not true. This is a problem. How can Jesus say it's the smallest when it's not? Well, I know I've explained this before, but I'm going to do it again. And I probably will keep doing it for as long as I'm ever a pastor and preaching. Have you never heard of something called hyperbole? I just don't understand the problem here because because we all use it quite a bit. And, and do you even know what it is? Hyperbole is, is, is exaggeration for effect. So if you were to say to me, Stacy, what's your um, what's your favorite drink? What do you like to, you know, we're going to have you over for dinner. What do you want? I would say, oh, I love sweet tea more than anything else on earth. What have I just said to you? That I love sweet tea more than Jamie and my children? That I love sweet tea more than Jesus. That I love sweet tea more than Cornerstone. You know what? What at face value, that's what I've said, correct? Yet at face value, that's completely false. 
Because I don't love sweet tea more than I love my family or my Lord or our church. I I have used hyperbole to communicate. I have exaggerated something for effect so that you can understand that I really like sweet tea. That's all I'm saying there. And you would get that in any normal conversation. We do this all the time. That was hyperbole. Okay? We don't do it all the time. We do it a lot, though. It's a very normal feature of our the way we just talk. And so we'll say things like, oh, that's the best restaurant in town. That's the worst movie I've ever seen. Uh, it's the greatest guy I've ever met. Nobody can cook like her. You always do this. That's like the worst statement ever, especially with your spouse. Okay? I've said this a million times. Notice that in all of these, we use superlatives, right? Best, worst, greatest, all, you know, always, etc. It's just one of the marks of hyperbole. You push things to their limit in order to make a point. And if we use hyperbole that much, are we really shocked to find it used in the scriptures? Because they're just people like us too, using words the way we do too. Jesus here isn't trying to give us a botany or biology lesson about the size of various seeds on earth. Do you understand that? He's using hyperbole. And just notice the superlatives here. It's the smallest of all the seeds on earth. If if you look at the next verse for a moment, you'll see that it becomes larger than all the garden plants. Is this really so difficult to understand? I don't think it's difficult at all. Jesus is clearly using hyperbole. He's exaggerating on purpose in order to make a point. And the question then, as we understand that is, well, what's the point? What is it exactly that Jesus is trying to communicate? Well, let's just finish walking through it. I think you'll understand. This tiny seed, I mean, it really is small and insignificant, he says. This tiny little seed, not very impressive in and of itself, is over time going to become this. I mean, that is a huge transformation. Maybe Jesus isn't using hyperbole after all, right? (laughs) Because that's that's a huge change. And obviously that takes time. That's not overnight growth that you see right there. But what seems small and insignificant at first eventually becomes something that is so large and so strong, Jesus says, even the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. Show me a tomato plant that can do that, by the way. Jesus' point here isn't to talk about the size of seeds. You get that? I don't know why we get hung up on these little details when it comes to parables. His point isn't to talk about those things. His point is that what starts out small and insignificant can, over time, become something very different than what it seemed at the beginning. Does that make sense? Do you you get this? This is not, not difficult. Now, let's bring back in what we learned about the parable of the sower and put all three of these things together. In the parable of the sower, we saw that the work of the spread of God's kingdom isn't uniformly productive, right? Here you've got a sower, and and three-quarters of his work is a waste. It is a waste. Some people hear the message that he is spreading, and they outright reject it. Others hear it, and they seem to grow temporarily, but it's false growth. There's nothing really there. Others hear it, they grow, but it's fruitless, and thereby it's practically useless. useless. Yet there are some. There are some in the midst of his sowing that hear, that believe, that accept, that grow and produce fruit. And the fruit that comes from this is amazing, he says, 30-fold, 60-fold. Hundred times what was sown. And in that, when we looked at it a few weeks ago, we saw that in the work of the kingdom, 
yes, there will be much failure. Do you understand that? There will be much failure, but there will be amazing success. Success above and beyond what any of us can imagine, especially especially when we see all the things that seemingly go wrong from a human perspective. In, In this parable of the seed growing, we saw that while the farmer's actions are clearly important, he has to sow, he has to reap. Ultimately, he's not the one who causes the growth. That's what Jesus is making, the point Jesus is making there. In fact, even in the midst of his work, he doesn't even fully understand or appreciate what's happening or how it's happening. And yet, he works and waits in confidence that there will be a harvest. He shows great faith in something that he doesn't fully understand and he cannot control. In the parable of the mustard seed, we see that what starts out small and insignificant by human standards can, over time, grow into something almost unimaginably different. What do we do with that? How do we take these truths and and, and let them apply to us and our understanding of the coming rule and reign of God over this earth and specifically in our lives and how we minister. Well, can I make a few applications or observations here to help us understand this? First, I would just note that the spread of God's kingdom is not guaranteed universal success in the sense that everyone who hears it will accept and submit their lives to it. But make no mistake, it is guaranteed success. Do you understand this? Not everyone will accept but many will. Some will. And I won't, I won't belabor this point much because I made the same point a few weeks ago when we looked at this passage uh, of the parable of the sower, but I just want to remind you of it this morning that folks, spreading the gospel, which is clearly kingdom work on our part, is the only endeavor in this life for which we have guaranteed success. We, we have it. It's not a matter of will it work. It's just simply a matter who's going to work. Who is it going to work in? When? Where? How? I don't know. I don't know which neighbor, which coworker, which I don't know, but I know it's going to work. I know it's going to work. Some people, when I say it to them, they're going to reject it outright. Okay, I know that. Other people, when they hear it, they're going to seemingly accept it. But the moment adversity or persecution comes up, guess what? They're going to fall away. Others are going to accept it, but they're going to become so caught up in the cares of this world that they're going to they're going to lose all fruitfulness. And yet, as terribly discouraging as all of that can be. Others are going to hear this same message and they're going to respond and there is going to be amazing fruitfulness as a result. We we could so easily lose hope, folks, in this ministry that God has given us to spread the news of the kingdom to the world around us. We could focus all of our mind and heart on all the bad things that happen. And yet I'm here today to remind you that God has promised, he has promised, he has guaranteed an amazing harvest if only we will be faithful. The reason it's guaranteed is because the coming, the spread, and the growth of God's kingdom has been his plan since before this world began. And when we get the opportunity, take the opportunity to partner with God in his eternal plan to bring about his rule and reign on this earth, there's no stopping that. And there's no stopping us and in this. You can't fail when you're a part of that plan. And so as we work, as we minister, as we preach Christ to those around us, whether that's individually or as community groups or as a church together, 
let us never forget nor ever be discouraged by the fact that not everyone's accepting. God himself has guaranteed success above and beyond anything we can imagine. Secondly, the growth, the growth of God's kingdom is nothing we can cause, nor is it something we will ever fully understand, and yet in faith, our work is used by God. I'll say that again. The growth of God's kingdom is nothing we can cause, it, it is, nor is it something we will ever fully understand, and yet in faith, in faith we work, our work is used by God. I was reflecting this week on, on how easily it, easy it is for me excuse me, to, to want to be in perfect control of everything in my life, right? I want to be in perfect control of my marriage or my parenting or my finances or my future. I want to be able to, to directly be in control of everything. And I, I find that to be true of ministry as well. Like, I wish I could make people accept Christ. I wish that I could, you know, when I'm sitting across the table from someone who is going through something, I wish I could just fix their problem right that moment. Just myself. I, I wish I could just fix every hurting marriage, every hurting uh, uh, home, every hurting person, just perfectly on my own. Perfectly on my own. I wish all of that was easy and doable for me. And yet, the reality is that we are in control of very little in this life. Probably nothing. I, I don't remember if it was John Piper or uh, David Platt who said this, but ever since I read this quote, it's, I've, it keeps coming back to my mind. That security is an illusion. It's an illusion. We live our lives for this thing of security. We want security in, in our finances, and so we, we try to get the best jobs and, and build the biggest bank accounts and the best retirements, but you recognize all of that can be taken away from you tomorrow. The market can crash and your family is starving and you can't eat money. We, we, we think somehow that you know, if we owned our home, we, that would make us secure. I, I say that's a struggle for me sometimes, and my home can be taken from me tomorrow. Well, if we just like live healthy lives, we're exercising and eating right, we'll, we'll have uh, physical security, health security, right? Please understand that, that cancer doesn't really care how healthy you are. And even if it did, car accidents don't. You've got no promise of tomorrow. There is no such thing as security in this world. And yet when it comes to ministry, it is very tempting for us to want to give our time and energy and our hearts only to those things that we think we can do or accomplish. Well, I, you know, I'm not going to give my time to this person. I'm only going to invest it in that person there because I think this person's not really worth my time and that person is. I think I can get them to respond better. Um, you realize you, you can't do that with either person? Only God can change hearts, not, not us. I want to take this class or get this, you know, knowledge so that I can be more effective witness and I can know better techniques for teaching people truth. Well, I'm not saying that those things don't have value, but recognize you can be the best teacher in the world and know truth better than anyone. And no one's going to believe or learn because of you. Only God opens eyes. Only God is able to, to take our presentations of the gospel, whether they're good or bad, either way, and use them to save a soul. Folks, we are never the cause of growth in any person at all. And if Cornerstone has had any impact on anyone over the years, please recognize that is not to our credit. I often joke with people that ministry is like the worst thing ever. And I don't mean just like professional paid. I mean like for all of us, our ministry. Because you recognize that you get no credit for any of the good things that actually occur. And you're completely to blame for all the bad. Okay. 
But that's just the reality because God is the only one who can do any good thing in ministry. You have an opportunity to share Christ with your neighbor. That's not because you were so cool and smart that you figured out how to get in their life. God gave you that. You had an opportunity to, to, to help someone when they were hurting and they were going through a difficult time. Praise the Lord, but that wasn't you. God used you, but he is ultimately the cause of all growth. And yet, for some strange reason, in God's plan, he chooses to use us in the process of growing his kingdom. And so in faith, we share the gospel because we believe it will produce fruit. In faith, we proclaim Christ because we know that just like that little seed, the power of God is within it to come and change a person's life in ways that we never, ever could. We are not the cause of the growth of God's kingdom, but we are given the privilege of participating in it. Number three, the full realization of God's kingdom may not always look very oppressive at points, but over time, it will continue to grow into something almost unimaginably different than what we see today. Did you catch that? That that the full realization of God's kingdom, of his rule and reign, will not always look very impressive at points. But over time, it will turn into something unimaginably different than what we see today. I don't know if it's because we're Americans or just because we're humans. I can't quite tell if it's an American problem or a human problem. But we, we love instant gratification, do we not? I mean, we want what we want now. We want to see results now. But the fact of the matter is, folks, God's kingdom doesn't really work that way. I mean, you just think of this historically for a moment. The, the coming of God's kingdom didn't exactly start with a bang. It started with a bust. Because here you've got this, this guy, a carpenter, middle-aged carpenter from Galilee, who says that he himself is the introduction of God's kingdom. Yet what happens to him? He is uh, uh, arrested and uh, executed as a criminal. Not a really great beginning. And yet here we are 2,000 years later, and who knows how many miles and lives later, And we are gathered this morning to sing the praise of this executed criminal. (laughs) You probably couldn't see that that day at Calvary. Probably couldn't picture 2,000 years later that the kingdom would be expanding across nations and boundaries and oceans and that people all over the world would gather to sing the praises of this executed criminal. And yet here we are. Here we are, and that that humble beginning has spread around the world. It's changed millions of lives from every kindred and tribe and people and nation, as you see there in Revelation 7. That didn't happen overnight. That took time. And, and, And that's just the historical side of this. Let's not forget how this applies to us practically as well, because how many times have we grown discouraged when we don't see instant growth either in ourselves or in the people with whom we work? You know, you share the gospel with someone and you're like, maybe they'll get saved right now. How many of you got saved the first time you heard the gospel proclaimed? You realize how rare that is? I, I grew up in church and, and in a Christian home. I heard the gospel from the time I was born till I was 18 years old. And I didn't accept Jesus. I didn't bow before him, submit my life to him until I'm in college. 18 years of hearing the gospel with no response. And yet we get discouraged when we share the gospel with our neighbor and they don't instantly fall to their knees in faith and repentance. Like, what are we, 
What are we missing here? Or even in our own lives, we, we, we get frustrated that we don't see more growth in ourselves. I mean, I, okay, so I've been a believer now for 18 years this October, and I still feel much more like a mustard seed than a full-grown mustard plant. I, I look and I see all the things that aren't right still and how slowly I seem to grow spiritually, and I'm just like, what's wrong with me? And I think this is just a problem we have that we need to remember that while we may be frustrated with the lack of growth either in ourselves or in those with whom we work, that, that ultimately what starts off small will, will, with God's help over time, grow into something almost unimaginably different than what you see today. This is true of us personally. This is true of our children this is, this is true of those uh, who we're working with, whether they're believers that we're trying to help become more like Jesus or they're unbelievers whom we're trying to share the gospel with. This is true of us as a church. Cornerstone is not what it should be. You get that? It never will be what it should be. But hopefully what starts off small will keep growing and getting larger and not in a numbers way, but in a spiritual way, turning into something unimaginably different than what you see today. If I could encourage you to to walk out this morning with anything, I would give you these two points. Number one, that you and I, all of us together, should examine our hearts to see exactly whose kingdom we're really interested in here. Because if, if we're interested in a kingdom that is always successful, and if we're interested in a kingdom that, that uh, we can cause and we can control, and if we're interested in a kingdom that can get us instant results, then I'm pretty sure it's not God's kingdom that we're really focused on. Maybe it's Cornerstone's kingdom that we're interested in. Maybe it's our own personal kingdoms that we're interested in, but it is clearly not God's kingdom. And, and if I could, off, off notes for just a moment, you recognize that this is part of the problem in our world today, particularly with churches and why so many people get turned off by the gospel. It's because they have seen far too many churches that at some point lost the focus on God's kingdom and turned it on to themselves. Because I have no doubt that if we wanted to, we could, we could do some amazing things here, amazing by human perspective, right? And we can offer free iPods to every visitor, and we can fill every seat in the building. Like, have 17 services every day. Uh, I have no doubt that we could build our own kingdom. There's enough devious people like myself who could probably figure that out, all right? Uh, this is why Cornerstone can never be known. I've, I've been saying that of late. It's just kind of been in my mind and heart more and more. Cornerstone can never be known. No no person connected to this room can ever be known because we have one kingdom we're working for and it is not any of us. Only one name can be known in this place and it is not any of ours. It is Jesus alone. Do you believe that? And if you are working for any other kingdom, then I pray, I pray this morning that you will just be so convicted by these words and fall down at your knees and be like, God, forgive me. I have focused on the wrong kingdom. Help me to focus on yours. To be then, number two, the second thing I want to give you is to be encouraged to do this hard work of the kingdom, knowing that not all of your work produces fruit. Much of it will be a waste by any human measure. It's going to take a lot of time. You can't cause it. You can't control it. Who wants to sign the dotted line? Like, nobody signs up for that kind of work, and yet this is the work we've called, been called to. And so as you go out into your neighborhoods and your workplaces and your families, don't lose heart and don't lose focus. Don't forget whose kingdom you are bringing. Because if we can remember what we've been called to do, the mission we've been given, 
then God will come in and he has guaranteed success. Guaranteed. You get to be a part of something that will not fail and that will last for all eternity. Now, who wants to sign the dotted line on that? I'm all for that one. Will you examine your hearts? Will you be encouraged in the work? If so, then I am confident that God can use us, not because of us, but use us for his glory to do amazing things here in Hampton Roads. Will you bow your heads in prayer? Dear God, we we come this morning and we confess that far, far too often we have been concerned with a kingdom, but it has been our own. We want to be in full control of all the things that occur. We want to everything to be just as we want them. We want full success. We want... We want all kinds of stuff, and ultimately that is not what you have promised. The kingdom that your plan has been unfolding for the past eon, since before the world began, has been very different than that. And ultimately, Lord, if we want guaranteed success, then there is only one plan to follow, and that's yours. And so forgive us, Father, for every way in which we follow our own plans and follow our own kingdoms and try to expand those into this life you have given us we are we 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 are sorry i don't at the same time lord as we go out we don't want to just feel guilty we if anything we want to be motivated and encouraged to go out and pursue a kingdom that is so far superior to our own that it is worthy of all of the struggle and toil that comes with it We know there will be failures. We understand that. You have told us. But Lord, help us to recognize that you can do, take very small things and turn them into things that we can't even imagine. Conversations, acts of love, relationships built, time spent. We don't even know the full fruits of all that we have sown. We leave that willingly in your hands this morning. And God, all we ask is that you take our very meager sin-filled, foolish efforts and use it to raise up a bountiful harvest that will bring praise and honor to you. Protect us, Lord, from ourselves, from our pride, from any desire we have to have our names known. There, There is no place for that in this kingdom. One name and one name alone matters. And so it is in that name that we pray this morning. It is To you, Jesus, we commit ourselves, and I pray that you will use us to spread your fame and glory all around this world, we ask in Jesus.